All right. Well, it is Friday, October 29th, 2021, and I am happy to be here. I being Jeff Salzman, and here being at a new episode of This Week in the New York Times, a post-progressive look at our progressive paper of record. And today, I want to focus on two books that have been featured and reviewed in the New York Times recently, and they both sort of uh, exemplify two sides of the polarity of apocalypse versus progress, and in in, in a fun way, I think. Uh, so the first one is a book by Gary Stengart, who is a novelist. I had never heard of him, but I guess he's a very highly regarded novelist, and people love his new book, his new novel, called Our Country Friends. And um, I think I have a picture of him here. Yeah, there he is. <laughs> I, like, I like this picture. He's in his swimming pool. He's in the Hamptons in uh, with a big bronze flamingo blown up. And, um, and he seems like a, a very fun guy, except for his dystopian view of the world. And so anyway, this is a, a feature about him in his new book by Alexandria Alter. And it was published on Wednesday. And it starts out, the dystopia is now. Gary Stengart said in an urgent tone, a few decibels shy of a yelp. We were sitting in Union Square on an unseasonably warm October morning as people around us walked dogs, pushed strollers, and scrolled their phones in, a po in the post-apocalyptic sunlight. Everything looked and felt weirdly normal. Not long ago, a man ranting in a public square about global collapse might have seemed like a messianic crank, but given the state of things, as we linger in the nebulous middle of the end or end of the middle of the pandemic, who could disagree? The dystopia is now. Well, I could disagree, <laughs> but uh, onward, I'll get to that. Uh, so he, she goes on, she talks about his new book, Our Country Friends, which Random House will release next week, is being lauded as, quote, the great American pandemic novel, unquote, and has drawn comparisons to Chekhov, who hovers over the novel like a patron saint. It turns bitingly funny and unbearably sad. It's among the first major works of literary fiction to wrestle with the psychological, sociological, and cultural impact of the pandemic and marks a new, more reflective register for Stengart. For Stengart, the pandemic was not so much a shock as a culmination of his lifelong belief that we're living on the edge of disaster. The constant state where terrible things are happening to every single member of society, where you can't escape, that's going to be the new normal. So we have to change the way we write, he said. It's a moment where we don't have the political, social, and societal will to avert catastrophe, he added. How do you not write about that if you're a writer? Aye. 
<laughs> so I'm reading that and I'm thinking, my goodness gracious, the, the, the story is about the, the, this. It's a reflection of what actually happened to him. The pandemic came. He's a writer in New York. He moved to his house in the country with a pool. Uh, you know, he's got his friends out there. And that's what is actually happening to this Gary Stengarth, the novelist. And it's how it's the setting of his novel as well. People come, friends come to this uh country estate he has. So I'm thinking, does, <laughs> does this guy have any, I was just watching a documentary on the siege of Leningrad, you know, in, in the, one of the most horrible uh, two, three year sieges in history, of course, and um, many millions have died and uh, the whole World War II calamity. And I'm thinking, does this guy have no sense of proportion? You know, I mean, what's up with this? You know, every single person, what's he say up here? The constant state where terrible things are happening to every single member of society where you can't escape. I mean, that this is, that was actually happening in large parts of human history. So, um, so I'm reading this and then he, I come to this next paragraph and it just completely flips me on my head. He says, it says, he has spent most of his life bracing for catastrophe, a stance he attributes partly to his Soviet and Jewish heritage. Born Igor Stentgart in Leningrad, <laughs> now St. Petersburg, um, his family immigrated to Little Neck, Queens when he was seven, and his parents trained him to expect the worst. You think apocalyptically, he said. I think that's hysterical. Um, and, and, and to just show a little bit of his wit, he talked about, you know, he, he was born Igor Stentgart, and my name was changed to Gary in America, so I would suffer one or two fewer beatings. <laughs> oh, Lord. But it's an argument for inherited trauma, uh, whether that happens in the physical realm or not. Uh, it certainly happens in the mimetic realm, where grandparents, parents you know, just the subtle body energies of fear can be transferred and perhaps genetic material as well. Um, so anyway, he, 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 the, the article continues to, he has a lot of self-awareness about his apocalyptic stance, which I think forgives a lot. And he's very, um, uh, he has sort of an aesthetic of doom that he, he wears a smoking jacket and, um, uh, when the, the author asked him about the risk, so he's, you know, he's gentrifying this Hudson Valley, the risk that the Hudson Valley was becoming too much like the Hamptons with its rich inhabitants and their infinity pools. He said proudly, our pool is finite. <laughs> so I think that's funny. I did get a copy of the book. It's not out yet. So it's good. It'll, it'll come when it is. I think it's a few, few matter of a few days, but uh, based on a lot of reviews, including this one, I'm going to read a couple paragraphs from here. Uh, it is uh, it's supposed to be really great. So I'm, I'm going to give it a whirl. Uh, and this is, this is a, the, the first one was a sort of a profile of uh, this author. And this is the actual book review by Molly Young. And just two paragraphs. And this is the last two paragraphs of the review after she just rhapsodizes about it. She says, to read this novel is to tally a high school yearbook's worth of superlatives for Stengart. Funniest, noisiest, 
sweetest, most entertaining. To those, I will add a few superlatives that were not celebrated at my own high school, most melancholic, most quizzical, most skilled at vibrating the deepest string, strings of the anthropoid heart. Our Country Friends is a perfect novel for these times and all times. The single textual artifact from the pandemic era, I would place at a time capsule as a representation of all that is good and true, true and beautiful about literature. I hope the extraterrestrials who exhume it will agree. So, uh, there's, um, so anyway, that's, that's the sort of apocalyptic view, even though, again, I think it comes with a lot of second tier self-awareness and that's, you know, we want the witness on board most of the time and that's uh, big move in consciousness. So anyway, now we go to the sort of the antidote, the other side of the polarity with Steven Pinker. And he's of course, one of our leading public intellectuals and he's out with a new book. And I'll look at a couple reviews, but first I wanna look at an interview that was conducted in the New York Times by David Marchese. And the title of it is, Steven Pinker thinks your sense of imminent doom is wrong. And I like that. All right. So he writes uh, in the introduction, Marchese writes, in our uncertain age, which can so often feel so dark and disturbing, as opposed to other more certain ages that were not dark and disturbing. I mean, what, uh, just the, the sort of, the, this um, assumption that our age is particularly dark and disturbing. Of course it is, but every stage is particularly, specifically dark and disturbing and also good, true and beautiful. Anyway, in our uncertain age, which can so often feel so dark and disturbing, Steven Pinker has distinguished himself as a voice of positivity. This has been a boon for him as his books like The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined, 2011, and Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress, 2018, these have been bestsellers and elevated the Harvard cognitive and elevated the Harvard cognitive psychologist who is 66 beyond academia and into the realm of the public intellectual. And so we have now this new book, Rationality, what it is, why it seems scarce and why it matters. And uh, I haven't read the whole book, but I love the, thesis that he has. I'm a big fan of Steven Pinker's with uh, certain, I don't want to say reservations, but I've, um, you know, I think other things than what he has to say too. So anyway, uh, let's see here. So here's Marquise with the first question about this new book, Rationality. He says, your new book is driven by the idea that it would be good if more people thought more rationally but people don't think they're irrational. So what mechanisms would induce more people to test their own thinking and beliefs for rationality? And 
And uh, Pinker's answer is, is kind of surprising, but I think very, very interesting. He says, ideally, there'd be a change in our norms of conversation. Relying on an anecdote or argu arguing ad hominem, these should be mortifying. Isn't that something? So, you know, just right there, two of the major currencies of our rhetoric, uh, anecdotes, my story, my personal experience, my opinion, arguing ad hominem, and then of course, straw manning and all of the rhetorical tricks that pass for, um, you know, dialogue, or in, in particularly the social media culture, and also in regular culture. I mean, listen to the way our, we talk, our friends talk, I talk, I notice it in myself. These should be mortifying. And I love that. He says, of course, no one can engineer social norms explicitly. But we know that norms can change. And if there are seeds that try to encourage the process, then there is some chance that it could go viral. And so this is the thesis of his new book, is that the, the answer to moving, making society more rational, which is not the only thing we need to be doing from an integral point of view, and he doesn't see that, and I'll get to that in a second, but making it more rational, which we want, is a collective, not an individual pro uh, project at this point. And I like that. It's interesting. He says, he says um, a conclusion that I came to in the book is that the most powerful means of getting people to be more rational is not to concentrate on the people individually, because people are pretty rational when it comes to their own lives. They get their kids clothed and fed and off to school in time, and they keep their jobs and they pay their bills. The key, though, is what kind of species are we? How rational is Homo sapiens? I think the answer is, especially for publicly consequential beliefs, we achieve rationality by implementing rules for the community that make us collectively more rational than any of us are individually. People make up for one another's biases by being able to criticize them. People air their disagreements, and the person with the strongest position prevails. Uh, and the person with the strongest position prevails. People subject their beliefs to empirical tests. And that is true. That is uh, beautiful <laughs> and good. And uh, and it's it's actually describes the world we're in. This is this is basically a modern uh, realization that we. Nobody gets to win arguments. The argument itself is the means of progress. And, uh, you know, people make up for one another's biases by being able to criticize them. And of course, this is going on in spades in our culture right now and uh, on social media and, you know, in real life. And we, we do note the, pol the continued polarization. I consider it a continued differentiation before an integration. But that is what is happening. And the idea that, you know, you can see that dystopically because look at all the arguing, oh my God, can't we just get along? And the, 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 the idea that people disagreeing means that they are, uh, understand each other less 
is I think wrong. I mean, it, the people disagreeing is one of the engines of evolution. And, um, and I think that's what's happening. So anyway, this is a good, you know, this is good horizontal evolution of the modern rational stage of development. It's not integral in the sense that, you know, it's, it's, it's mean modern in the sense that it thinks that it's the only right way to think, you know, that rational is the only and best way to think. And, um, and Pinker wouldn't really sign on with that. He, he gets that people get to be irrational and that we tell stories and those are all very motivating to us, but you get the sense that he doesn't really, he just assumed that that wasn't the case. And he does, um, it's, it's one of the problems that I have with Pinker and it's even with the book that turned me on so much. And Pinker is, he is an absolute hero of mine, uh, particularly for, for his book, the, 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 um, the Better Angels of Our Nature, which is, um, you know, basically the, the argument about the decrease in violence. And he aggregates all sorts of scientific studies from anthropology and archaeology and psychology and forensics, et cetera. It lays out uh, a pretty unassailable trajectory of the decline of human uh, of, of human violence over the story, over the, 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 the uh, certainly uh, written history. And that's an issue that we can look at. And I, at least what I put it on the table is that these aren't claims for human existence before written history, necessarily. Uh, but uh, it certainly is since uh, you know, agriculture, since the rise of the empires of red um, stages of consciousness. But anyway, it's, it's good stuff. It's, it's um, the first two thirds of the book is this story about material progress, less violence, more decency, more complex lives, longer lives, more wealth, health, education, calories, all of that good stuff. Just like Hans Rosling, if you remember him, he died, I guess, a couple of years ago, but he became real internet famous with these charts about the movements of human history in terms of particularly material um, progress. So again, I love it. Uh, but of, it was the last third of the book, his original book there, The Better Angels of Our Nature, that lost me because this is where I think he runs up to the uh, limits of the understandings that rationality bring us. And he attempts to answer the question, why? You know, why are things getting better? We can chart that they are, but why are they getting better? And to me, the answer is obvious, and that is because growth is built into the cosmos. <laughs> Simple as that. But being a materialist won't see that, can't see that. You can't see or measure that. And so his, his explanation is all about psychological experiments and synapses and twin studies. And I just, I just lost interest, you know. And this is the difference between, we talk about the good aspects of any stage or any worldview versus its mean aspects. The good aspects are what it brings to the party. So modernity brings uh, rational understanding, rational consciousness, logic, all this good stuff. Mythic consciousness, the stage before that brings 
an enchanted world, a world of obedience and being part of this greater story. Uh, modernity, of course, deconstructs that into oblivion, and that's mean orange, because consciousness is, is reduced to synapses, and they think that's the only, you know, that's the only box they can work with in terms of coming up with uh, explanations for why there is, you know, this obvious progress. So that's mean orange. Now, mean green uh, just Basically, this is the next stage of development, the progressives, the green stage of development, uh, postmodern. And this, this is where a lot of the New York Times is. Uh, and in fact, let me just get to the actual book review of this book, not, this, not the um, profile of Pinker. And this is by Jennifer Zalai. And she, you know, she comes from the liberal progressive position. And the liberal pos progressive position against um, Pinker can be boiled down to two things. One is that the idea of progress valorizes capitalism too much. If this is the latest and greatest, then, um, it, you know, and Green wants to deconstruct capitalism and inequalities and the exploiting of the natural world and all the bad stuff, all the mean orange stuff that comes with modernity. So they, they got a point. Um, so that's what, you know, that's what they're, they're the, the idea that this is the culmination of what humans are capable of, especially when we think of the wonderful life of the hunters and gatherers in the myths of history, which I think is debatable, but whatever, you know. So that, that can't stand. And then the other one is it misses out on all the suffering that's going on in the world. And that is, you know, progress has a hard time wrapping its moniker around that. And, and I, I get that that's a, that's a, a, a that gets stuck in the craw of the progressive sensibility. Um, so anyway, here's what she says about his book, Rationality. She says, Pinker, wait, here we start up here, okay. Most of rationality, the book, is given over to ideas from game theory and behavioral economics, parsing the discrepancy between models and reality. Pinker spends page after page walking us through concepts like base rate neglect, that is giving too little weight to the original probability of an event in the face of new information, fair enough, and the quote, availability heuristic, unquote, which is guessing the likelihood of, of an event according to what comes easily to mind. And these are very good points that he makes. And she says that, you know, that's, you know, that's what he brings. He, she says a lot of it's repackaged. But she says the trouble arrives when he tries to gussy up his psychological hat with his more elaborate public intellectual attire. The person who succumbs, quote, to the, quote, small pleasure of a lasagna dinner instead of holding out for the large pleasure of, quote, a slim body is apparently engaged in a similar kind of myopic thinking. So, you know, this idea that he would privilege a slim body as being the thing you should, you know, go for, 
that's, you know, green can't abide that anymore. Fair enough. You know, green's project is to bring everybody fat, skinny, red, blue, green, orange, whatever into the fold. Now you have to think progressively, but uh, that that's their sort of uh, uh, hierarchy, if you will. And integral wants to pierce through that to, you know, essentially real diversity or at least a greater degree of diversity. Um, and let's see what else she writes here. Oh, he says, he repeatedly says that by promoting rationality, he's promoting epistemic humility. But you'd be hard pressed to find much humility here, as he pronounces that among the biggest barriers to rationality's triumph is, quote, the, universe, the university's left-wing suffocating monoculture. And, um, and here she... Uh, indulges my side bias, which he points out, which is we don't tend to see the interior challenges and circumstances of people who are opposed to the, us. And actually he's doing the same thing, you know, to the degree that he says that without uh, also noting the upside of progressive thought and even this um, monoculture that actually has a piece of the truth. The only problem is that it's mono. It only thinks it's piece is the only right one. Other than that, it's great. And, you know, welcome to human evolution, at least at the first tier. When we move into integral, there's this post-progressive move is where we really do want to integrate uh, what's good from all of these previous stages. Magic, mythic, rational, sensitive, multicultural, you know, postmodern, progressive, all of them. We want all of the truths of all of them to be online in this new integral human, the only thing that we're leaving behind is the mean aspect of each one of those, which is its insistence that it is the only way to think. So we actually get to think two, three, four things at once. And that's why we say integral is multi-perspectival. Um, so I do wanna actually share just one other couple paragraphs from the interview in the Wall Street Journal which you would expect to be more friendly because Wall Street Journal is, you'd have to say, probably center-right uh, as the New York Times becomes more left. These become the sort of two sides of the establishment conversation in the U.S. And, uh, but this uh, article, actually, this is a, uh, the review by Andrew Stark in Wall Street Journal on rationality. And it's titled, A, hu A Little Humility, Please. <laughs> so, you know, everybody's getting on everybody for not being humble. <laughs> All right, so I'm just gonna read this one part because I think it's really interesting because it does get to where I think is a, you know, it's a problem for Steven Pinker and a problem for me with Steven Pinker because I want to move beyond materialism. It's not the only explanation for reality. And consciousness is bigger than, you know, the meat of our brains. And so he talks about, uh, Stark uh, talks about how um, Mr. Pinker fails at consciousness and explaining consciousness. And, um, he doesn't discuss the possible limits of reason when it comes to comprehending the, comprehending the world within our heads. Yet here too, philosophers like Colin McGinn 
claim that we are, quote, bang up against the limits of our capacity to understand the nature of consciousness. Any further understanding would require us to somehow get outside the mind, pondering it from an Archimedean point of point that is unavailable to us. Similarly, reason has trouble getting us entirely inside the mind. There comes a limit where language itself, as Wittgenstein noted, language itself can no longer convey the full interiority of another person's thoughts and feelings. He counseled a kind of modest reticence, and this is Wittgenstein, that whereof we cannot speak, therefore we must remain silent. And I like that. And I like that that's in the New York Times. And I like that there is, I'm sorry, that was in the Wall Street Journal. Um, because, you know, it's one of the things we talk about at Integral is we move, you know, we, we integrate the truths of the traditions that, you know, the religious traditions and spirituality and the, you know, the, the wisdom of history pre-modernity that the world is enchanted, you know, that we're supposed to be here, that there's something going on here, that, um, you know, the, in some ways science gives us the best story of all, you know, the big bang and the evolution of everything. And that there's something going on there that's not just, you know, as Ken Wilber would say, frisky dirt. So anyway, that's, uh, some of what's going on <laughs> in the New York Times. And uh, happy to see my hero, Steven Pinker, uh, come out with a new book. And, um, you know, and I, I, I see the limits of it and the limits of, uh, you know, cognitive thought in general, words and thought, time and space even. You know, time and space arose out of, you know, whatever existed before the Big Bang, which we can't talk about. And so that's must remain silent and fill our libraries <laughs> with ideas about it. Anyway, thank you, everybody. I'm not going to be here next week. I'm going to be on vacation for a quick, a long weekend. And so I will be back. Let me just look at the calendar here. Not on the 5th. I will be gone of November, but back on the 12th of November. So happy Halloween for those of you who do that sort of thing. And uh, uh, otherwise, we'll see you back here on November the 12th. Take care. Thanks, folks. <laughs>